morning again. <clears throat> Today we're going to look at the par- two parables, parable of the persistent widow and the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is the last week of the parables. We're going to start something different next week, so hopefully you enjoyed the parables of Jesus. Remember, parables are stories that don't have to be true in the sense that they've actually happened. They're just used to, to teach, and it doesn't mean that these stories haven't happened. It just means that they don't have to be true, right? They don't have to have been true in the sense that it's occurred. I think both, both of these stories today are certainly ones that you can look at in the realm of possibility of, of certainly happening. Both of them make, make sense. So we're going to be today is in Luke chapter 18. If you would like to turn there, you're more than welcome to. If not, it'll be up here on the screen behind me so you can see. But Luke 18 will be in the, I'm in the NIV. So if you have a different translation and it reads a little differently, that's, that's probably why. So we're going to look at the, the, first of all, we'll look at the parable of the persistent widow. Then we'll go to the, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It begins, this parable begins in Luke 18, verse 1, by saying this, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So you've got the point right there. There's your thesis statement, right? Jesus tells them a parable. The point of the parable is to always pray, to continue to pray, even when you feel like maybe it's not working or God's not hearing you, and to never, ever give up, okay? It's a, it's a, great, it's a great parable. Verse 2, he said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God, nor cared what people thought. There was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Two people in this parable. We have the judge and we have the widow. Now the judge is described by Jesus as neither fearing God nor caring what people thought. Now the last one's not that bad. I mean, if you don't care what people think, that can sometimes be okay. But the combination of the two, Jesus is trying to tell us something about the judge. He doesn't fear God, and he doesn't care what anybody thinks. What's that tell us? He has no moral compass, no moral basis, and then he doesn't even try to make people around him happy. So if he's both those things, it's going to tell us something about the judge. The judge isn't a judge that you would want to go see, because he doesn't really care. That's what Jesus is trying to let us the hint Jesus is giving us, right? He doesn't care. He doesn't care what God thinks. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks. He just does whatever he wants, right? Not a good judge. That's not the job of a judge. He doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about what's right and what's fair. He only cares about himself. And the widow has come to him pleading for what, does verse 3 say? Grant me justice against my adversary. The widow isn't coming saying, I want special favor from you. I want you to do this even though it's wrong, right? That's not what the widow is coming for. The widow is coming asking the judge to do his job. That's, always, that's all the widow is asking. She's not asking for anything above and beyond, nothing special. She doesn't asking for more favor. She just wants the judge to actually do the judge's job. Just simple. Do your job, right? We see that in verse 4 that the judge is refusing. Jesus tells us for some time he refused. He's not doing his job. He's not doing what a good judge is supposed to do. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, that word can also be translated as nagging, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. So the judge isn't good. He's not a good judge. We would refer to this judge as, as corrupt. Because the widow has no position in the local community and has no funds to bribe the judge. And so the judge isn't going to do what the judge is supposed to do because it doesn't benefit him. He's a terrible judge. 
needs to find a different job. But because the widow doesn't give up, but because she refuses to quit, and she keeps pestering him and nagging him and bothering him, is this hitting home with anybody? Don't look at your wife right now if you're standing here, right? But because she doesn't give up, because you haven't taken the Christmas slice off yet, which I just did this week, by the way, because you haven't done, taken the garbage out yet, because, and she keeps after you, why? Because you won't do what you're supposed to do. The judge won't do what he's supposed to do. And so the, the widow doesn't let him off the hook, which is good for her. And because the judge finally has enough of her pestering him, and because he thinks maybe she might eventually get so mad she might attack him, she might start taking her cane and, and beating him with it, he thinks to himself, maybe I'll just give in finally. I'll just do what's right. He's not doing it because he thinks it's right or because he has a moral compass. Or, right? he, his motives are purely selfish. He decides to give in to her simply because she won't leave him alone. And he thinks, well, maybe she'll bring harm to me eventually, so I better just do this to get her off my back, right? I mean, it's not exactly the motives we are looking for, for a judge. But at least he finally decides to do what's right, even though it's, he's only looking out for himself. This is how the story goes. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, we find faith on the earth. Jesus' point is, if the unjust judge finally gives in because you keep being pestered and nagged, what will a good God do for you if you continue to pray? If the unjust judge finally gives in and goes, okay, enough, what will a just God do For you, when you cry out for justice, well, he'll hear your prayers, and Jesus says he will answer those prayers. Of course, we know that the the point of this parable from the very beginning was to never give up. That's part of it, right? Don't quit. Keep going. So I have a never quit, a never give up story I want to share with you. It's about a, a man who's alive to this day. He lives in New Mexico. His name is Hiroshi Miyamura. Hiroshi tried to enlist in the United States Armed Forces at 17 years old after the attack on Pearl Harbor, but was not allowed because of his Japanese heritage. Japanese-American men had been classified as enemy aliens by the U.S. government. Hiroshi said this about the situation. There weren't many of us Japanese in the U.S. at that time. The government didn't really know much about us. They didn't know whether we would be loyal to America or Japan. But I considered myself to be an American like anybody else, so it was really a shock when I heard that I was considered an enemy alien. The view of Japanese Americans changed after an all-volunteer battalion of young Japanese Americans, mostly from Hawaii, performed well in the European theater. They became one of the most highly decorated units in the military, so Hiroshi was drafted and eventually sent to Europe at the very end of the war. He didn't see action, but enlisted in the reserves so he was called to active duty when the Korean War broke out. It was here in Korea where Hiroshi would show what he could do in active duty. This is from his official military citation for the Medal of Honor. On the night of the 24th of April, Company H was occupying a defensive position when the enemy fanatically attacked, threatening to overrun the position. Corporal Miyamura a machine gun squad leader, aware of the imminent danger to his men, unhesitantly jumped from his shelter, 
wielding his bayonet in close hand-to-hand combat, killing approximately 10 of the enemy. Returning to his position, he administered first aid to the wounded and directed their evacuation. As another savage assault hit the line, he manned his machine gun and delivered withering fire until his ammunition was expended. He ordered the squad to withdraw while he stayed behind to render the gun inoperable. He then bayoneted his way through infiltrated enemy soldiers to a second gun emplacement and assisted in its operation. When the intensity of the attack necessitated, necessitated the withdrawal of the company, Corporal Miyamura ordered his men to fall back while he remained to cover their movement. He killed more than 50 of the enemy before his ammunition was depleted and he was severely wounded. He maintained his magnificent stand despite his painful wounds, continuing to repel the attack until his position was overrun. When last seen, he was fighting ferociously against an overwhelming number of enemy soldiers. Hiroshi was taken as a prisoner of war after being injured by shrapnel from a grenade blast that wounded his leg. He was forced on a month-long march to what was known as Camp One. They were not fed for his first two weeks at the camp, had to drink from nearby springs for their water, and the many who were wounded did not receive medical attention. When food finally came, it wasn't much. During his 27 months in captivity, Miyamura lost 50 pounds. During his time as a prisoner of war, his wife was notified that he was missing in action. It wasn't until armistice talks began that the U.S. command learned that Miyamura had been taken prisoner. His wife was notified that he was a POW, which to her was good news. He was alive. His Medal of Honor citation was issued while he was a POW in a top-secret ceremony. The U.S. did not want the Chinese to know whom they had as a prisoner. After his release and return home, President Eisenhower eventually presented him with the Medal of Honor. Corporal Hiroshi Miyamura, a man once told that he couldn't serve his country, also received a Purple Heart, the POW Medal, and the Meritorious Service Medal. Medal of Honor recipient, United States Army Corporal Hiroshi Miyamura, a man who refused to quit. A man who simply could not and would not give up. Jesus tells us a story about a persistent widow, someone who refuses to quit. Hiroshi Miyamura is a great example of someone who refuses to quit. When he could have said, no, I'm not doing it, when his country said you couldn't serve, he chose to serve anyway. And when presented with the opportunity in battle, he saved at least 15 to 16 of his own men as he sacrificed what could have been his life. A great example of what it means to never give up, to never quit. And isn't that the point of the parable Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 18? Don't ever give up. Don't ever quit. No matter what stands in front of you, there is someone who stands behind you who is far greater who knows the situation you are in before you have ever entered into it and who will see you through if you refuse to give up. Now the second parable we're going to look at switches themes a little bit, but happens directly after here in the book of Luke. It's an important parable, I think, for us to look at and to, to dive into. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you've been here for our other parables, you know that Pharisees uh, and Jesus were in conflict with each other quite frequently. Now, the Pharisees were the religious authority of their day. 
they had studied the book, they knew it inside and out, and had used their position in, in their religion and their community to elevate themselves, essentially. And Jesus has some problems with some of their actions. And so Jesus is going to tell a story about two men, one who is a Pharisee and one who is a, a tax collector. Now, if you have to understand that while being a tax collector today obviously isn't a popular job now, it's never been a real popular job. It was certainly a very unpopular job in Jesus' day. A ta- to be a tax collector in Jesus' world meant you were a traitor, essentially. You had betrayed your own people, and now you worked for Rome. And so when the Romans collected their taxes, you had to go to your own people and collect those taxes for Rome. Well, Jewish people hated the fact that Rome was, was over them. Right? They wanted to be f- their own nation. They wanted to be free. So when you, as a tax collector, collected those taxes, you, you appeared essentially as a Benedict Arnold, as a traitor to your own people. And so tax collectors were despised in the ancient world, and specifically by the Jewish people. Of course, the tax collectors, not all of them, it's not fair to say that, but most of them, how they made money was by requesting a little more than was necessary. So not only were they known as traitors, they were often people who cheated, who took more than was necessary, more than what they were supposed to, so that they could benefit themselves. So keep that in mind when Jesus tells this story. You have two very different people. You have a Pharisee who's supposed to be a a very a highly religious person who follows the rules and the laws, and you have somebody who's a tax collector, who's the opposite end of the spectrum, someone who lies and cheats. So this is what Jesus says, Luke 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Again, we hear the point before we jump into the parable. Lots of the parables, we had to figure out what the point was. Verse 9 is an incredibly important verse for all of us to hear. And when I mean that, I mean like every day. Jesus tells this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. That's the point of the parable. Jesus is trying to challenge those who think that they are so good and are so right and have it all together that they're willing to look down on other people. Remember that. We're going to come back to verse 9. Remember that's the theme as we go through this story. Here's the parable. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus tells us a story about two men. Now, a good Pharisee went to the temple, or at least prayed three times a day. If you prayed to the temple, it was kind of like extra, extra credit, bonus points. So the Pharisee, during one of his regular prayers, prays that prayer that is super condescending, right? And sadly, the prayer is much more about him than it is about God or anybody else, which if that's your prayer life, you have a terrible prayer life, just FYI. If in your prayers you're talking about other people instead of you, stop. Stop doing that, Right? If you're like, hey, God, my neighbor, he's a jerk, and do you help him get better? And then my aunt, she's not very nice. Can you help her be nicer? And, but me, I'm pretty good, right? 
That's not a good prayer life, just so you know, right? Like, look in the mirror at some point. Don't throw stones when you live in a glass house. Both of them go up to the temple. They're both praying. The Pharisee talks way too much about himself and other people. And he literally says, God, thank you that I'm not like this loser over here. I mean, that's what he says. That's the point of the parable. He literally says, or even like this dude over here who's praying. Maybe you would think if you were a religious person and you saw somebody who was far, who you thought was far from God praying, you'd be excited by that. You'd be like, look at this guy. Good for him. Not this Pharisee. He's playing the comparison game. But hey, I'm better than him. The comparison game is a very dangerous game for any of us to play. Because guess what? You will always find someone who's a little better than you and you'll find somebody who's a little worse. So if your bar is, hey, I'm better than the, ma- the murderer, that's a terrible bar to have, right? You need to raise your bar. That's not the bar. That's not it. Like, the comparison game doesn't get us anywhere in life. It never has, and it never will. Because when you, you always find someone who's worse than you, and you'll always find someone who's better than you. That's not the bar. The bar is perfection. That's the bar. And spoiler alert, you and I, we've missed it. You've ever watched high jumping in the Olympics? We have to jump over the bar. You and I, you know what we did? We ran, we tripped, we hit the bar, and it fell down, right? That's what we've done, all of us. None of us have cleared the bar. None of us have gotten close. Only one person cleared the bar. Only one person made it over. His name? The guy telling the story. It's Jesus. He's it. He's the only one who's made it over. The only one who can claim perfection. The rest of us are flawed and we've fallen short. If you haven't done it today, it's going to happen. Just wait. None of us have made it over. And so to be the Pharisee and play the game of, hey, I'm better than him is a terrible game to play. That's not the bar. That's not where it's set. But look at the response of our tax collector, our liar, our cheater, and our traitor. That's who he is, remember? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He's, he's, he can't even approach God, right? He's, he's way back at the door. He's in the very far back pew. And he says, God, would you have mercy on me? A sinner. See, what he's doing right that the Pharisee isn't is one, he's talking to God. That's a great way of praying, by the way. You should probably talk to him and not yourself. And two, he knows where he stands. He says, God, do you have mercy on me? Because I'm not all that great. Because I've fallen short time and time again. Or the Pharisee says, God, thank you. I'm not like this jerk over here. The problem is the Pharisee is in the same situation as a tax collector, isn't he? He's flawed too. He makes mistakes too. He falls short too. He just doesn't want to admit it. There's nothing more dangerous than someone who thinks they're, they're perfect. That's dangerous. You're not. And I'm not. Remember what verse 9 said. What was the point of the parable? Jesus, Luke tells us that Jesus tells this parable because some were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. William Barclay says, No man who is proud can pray. The gate of heaven is so low that none can enter it save upon his knees. No man who despises his fellow men can pray. 
In prayer, we do not lift ourselves above our fellow men. We remember that we are one of a great army of sinning, suffering, sorrowing humanity, all kneeling before the throne of the mercy of God. We're all in the same position. We're all in serious trouble. The problem that we all have is for far too long and far too often, we as the church have not paid attention to verse 9. In his book, Unchristian, William Kinnaman did some, some research on why people either one, have a negative view of the, of the Christian faith, or two, who have been a part of the Christian faith and leave. And listen to what he found out as he surveyed people. Nearly nine out of ten young adults who are outside the church, who have never been Christians, 87% said that the term judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. More than half the young Christians between ages of 16 and 29, 53% said they believe that the label judgmental accurately fits present-day Christianity. 87% of people who are not in the church and 53% of young people in the church said that it accurately describes the church, that the church is, part of its nature, judgmental. That can't be the case. That is simply not good enough. You can't. Now you might say that that's just perception, and then you're right, it's perception, but problem is perception is often reality. People who perceive it that way think it and believe it to be that way. We cannot be described as judgmental. Verse 9 condemns it. We can't look at ourselves and think we're somehow better or, 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 or higher or more righteous than the next person because none of us are. We just aren't. We are all in desperate need of that amazing grace that Steve was singing about earlier. That when he started talking, I got nervous he was going to preach my sermon for me. I about turned his microphone off. I'm like, you need to stop, Steve. Quit. <laughs> the grace has always been and will always be amazing. And it's offered to us free. Not dependent upon our own righteousness. If it was, we'd all be in some serious trouble. That grace is given to us because of the death the burial, and the resurrection of this Jesus. He has paid it all for us. All of it. Your righteousness is nothing compared to God. Neither is mine. Nothing. We have no legs to stand on when we look down our nose at somebody else. Remember the old adage your teacher told you when you pointed your finger at someone, what's happening? Three more of them pointing right back at you, right? As Christians, we have got to make sure that we are people. Doesn't mean we can't believe in things. Doesn't mean we can't stand on truth. But people who are not judgmental, who are looking down our nose at other people thinking we're better than them because we're, we're not. Every one of us is in desperate need of the same grace, the same mercy, the same compassion that comes from our God. Jesus paid a terrible price to give it to us terrible price he was beaten for us he was spit on and ridiculed he was mocked His clothes were ripped from him and gambled for he had nails that were driven through his hands and his feet as he hung on an execution stake waiting to die 
He didn't do it because it benefited himself. He didn't get, gain anything from it. He did it for you and for me. So that you and I could be reconciled, be brought back into relationship with God because our sin had driven us from him, hadn't it? And in one faithful act, as he breathed his last and said, uttered the words, it is finished, he meant it. It's finished. It's over. And as he said that, he defeated death once and for all and conquered sin on our behalf. Not so you and I can look down our noses at our neighbor, so that you and I can share with our neighbor this saving and amazing grace. So as you leave here today and you go back to work, to school, to the grocery store, wherever, the ball game, wherever you're headed, remember that you are an agent of grace. That wherever you go, this Holy Spirit who resides in you is with you and can use you to draw others to this Jesus. Instead of repelling people by being judgmental, our job is to be a magnet for this Jesus. It's to draw people to him because they see something in us. That something is Jesus. It's not our own righteousness. It's not how good we are. It's not following rules. It's Jesus. It always has been and it always will be. Cling to him with everything you have. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to, to read these parables. The first, of course, about never, ever quitting, never giving up as we pray to you, God. No matter what the situation is, no matter how terrible it feels, how alone we feel, God, we know that our job is to continue to lift our eyes and our voices to you, to talk with you, and to pray, knowing that you are faithful to hear us every time we come before you. And God, would you help us as we try to, to do the best we can to follow the example of Jesus, to be more like him every day, to never put our confidence, never put our hope, our trust in our own righteousness, because our own righteousness is, isn't much. But to put our hope and our trust and our future in the righteousness of your Son, who was perfect. And help us as we go about the things we do every day to radiate your grace to this world that is in desperate need of it. To be agents of your grace everywhere we go. God, we thank you for the faithfulness of your Son to make all this possible for us. And it's in his powerful and healing name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.